0: Today is a special episode here at Bobby and Jens, as it's our 100th episode. Yenzi, I just wanted to take time to thank you, Mark Payne, our producer, and all the people at VeloNews and outside that have supported us over the last two years. I do not know how fast this went. As a special treat for our milestone episode, we sit down with four-time Tour de France, two-time Vuelta Espana, and one-time Giro d'Italia winner, Chris Froome today. Also, wanted to thank all of our past guests and listeners for making this project so much fun, and we hope to see you again in 2023. And this is our interview with Chris Froome. Okay, everyone, for our 100th episode, we have a very special guest here on Bobby and Jens, Chris Froome. Welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. You know, Christmas is in the books. Uh, what do you got planned for New Year's Eve?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I guess typical typical bike riders. New Year's Eve, not really much going down, especially with um, down under. Just just on the cards as well for me. Um, so it's it's I'm in full steam training at the moment and trying to get ready to go down to Australia.
2: So you enjoy as much family time as you can. Because you'll be gone for, what, two weeks or how early do you fly over there?
1: So I'm actually going to leave probably straight after New Year um, on the second uh, well one day later. Um, get down to Australia a little bit earlier, at least do a good 10 days out there before uh, before the sort of uh, running in two down under. Uh, try and get acclimatized to the heat out there. um I'm actually going to probably stay away for the best part of five weeks, actually, all through January into February, Um, stay in Australia, try and get a bit of training in. I'm going to go do Cadell's race as well. Um, That's on the plan. Um, Just try and get as as much warm weather training as possible. Um, I've always been a rider, I think, who struggles uh, in colder temperatures. I've always had um, chest issues and it, it, I've always had complications in the cold I always find I, I don't respond as well and I, I tend to get sick very easily so the best best uh, best plan of action for me is to try and avoid avoid the cold altogether and get down uh, somewhere warm where I can just put in 30 35 hour weeks of training where where it allows obviously it's going to be a bit bit tricky around uh, the actual racing itself. But my main purpose of going down to Australia is just to do a big, big block of preparation. Really,
0: that was always such a great race to go to. I know I did it with you, Yenzi, when when uh, Stuart O'Grady was our teammate, and now he is the race organizer of the whole thing. So it should be should be a great event. It's obviously their summertime, so like you said, Chris, you're going to get a lot of nice warm weather riding. What was the other option if you didn't pick the down under? Uh, trip or schedule? What was what will the the rest of your teammates be doing that during that period?
1: So I think there were, there were two or other two other options. One was to go down to Argentina and do the the tour of San Juan, which I think was um, pitted to be more of a more of a sprinter's kind of event. Um, maybe less of a less of a place to go and train. I, I don't know. I've I've never actually. Been training down in um, down in Argentina, so I, I don't really know what's what's possible out there. Um, but so San Juan would have been an option, and also uh, that the team, the guys who aren't in San Juan or down under, is is doing a small small camp for the guys in um, I think in Alicante or somewhere in Spain um, through January, and then the guys will probably start off racing in uh, the Mallorca races or heading to the the early season Spanish races
2: so a typical uh, cyclist question Um, how do you feel in terms of preparation right now compared to last years and what do you want to focus on when you get over there you need more intervals max power endurance power building up the miles or where's the plan what's what's the idea of the next months I
1: I I I think um, certainly for me at the moment I think the biggest um Biggest goal for me at the moment is just to try and stay healthy, um, get as much volume in as possible, just try and set up a really good platform going into the season. I'm not I'm not too bothered about results right now, uh that sort of or, or trying to get into race fitness very quickly. Um I'm looking at the season uh as a bigger picture and I, I want to get into the season with a with a really good base, um, a platform that I can I can work off and, and start start building into once uh, the more serious racing starts later on
0: okay so if this race is stage one of your preparation what are your objectives for the 2023 season
1: i mean a, a lot for us i guess as a team at the moment is is a little bit up in the air in terms of the the wild cards for the grand tours um i mean there's, there's no beating around the bush i mean the grand tours for me is is where it's at um that's what that's what keeps me going at the moment and keeps me, keeps me racing. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to think of the season without, without Grand Tours, if, if I'm honest. Um, so obviously the relegation, um, whole, the whole relegation uh, situation throws a bit of the, a spanner in the works in, in terms of our planning. Um, but we are very much hoping to, to, to get a wild card to to the Giro d'Italia, and and also for the Tour de France at least, um, but there's there's no guarantees I guess. Uh, so I think that's probably only going to be decided uh later on in January February. uh the the wild cards. I'm I'm not hundred percent sure when when that's announced, but um, ideally I'd I'd like to 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 build up towards the tour and have that as as a big big goal for me next year.
2: So um, if we want to go back about 25 years or 30 years, when and how did you ever get introduced to cycling? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I
1: guess I fell in love with the bike when I was growing up in in Kenya, in, in East Africa. Um, the bike to me, it had nothing to do with racing to start off with. It was just the love of being outdoors, the love of as a, as a young kid, as young as Five six years old, being able to get around on my own to go and explore the world. Um, back then, it was it was pretty safe um, for a kid growing up in Kenya. I my parents basically let me go out on the streets from a young age, um, and the only rule I had was to be back before dark. So, going out on the bike for me was basically getting to explore the world, getting to meet people, going getting to go places, getting to. Go to my my friends' houses without having to ask my parents. Can they can they take me there or anything? So, I guess for me the bike was just independence, and um, it was my wings. And it was only really as a teenager um, when I went down to boarding school in South Africa that I was exposed to the professional side of cycling and seeing the Tour de France for the first time. I only saw the Tour de France maybe at the age of 16 for the first time. Um, And I was just like, I was blown away. I was just like, wow, that looks pretty cool. Uh, I remember at the time it was Lance and Ivan Basso uh, battling it out in the mountains. You guys were probably there too somewhere. Um, And I can just remember just being blown away at the sport, just thinking, wow, that looks that looks incredible. I want to do that one day. And I think that's that's when I guess the that that fire was lit for me that I started uh, reading up about training and trying to figure out how do I how do I get myself uh, to be a professional cyclist and that was uh, I mean it was a bit of an unconventional route I I had to jump through a lot of different hoops to to try and get get over to to Europe for the first time and to try and get the attention of of, um, someone on the world, world scene to, to try and get my first contract. But, um, yeah, I, I think, um, it all started, I guess, just having that, that love for the bike as, as a kid and, and then, then being exposed to the professional side, um, as a, as a teenager.
0: Well, as many of our listeners probably know already, Chris has written a book, uh, quite a few years ago called the, the climb, I believe. And there are some just amazing talk about having to jump through hoops to get to where you are um is an understatement to say the least but did you know when you came over with what was your first team uh uh kanaka kanaka minolta like back in 2007 did you know when you came over in 2007 that you would become the rider that you became
1: i I didn't have a clue i mean back then i i knew i was I, I was good at climbing and i knew i could um sustain like a, a good tempo for a long time so i could ride a good time trial in theory um but aside from that no i mean i i, I obviously watching the sport and being a fan of the sport as, as a youngster getting into it in my teenage years i i i almost i made made this goal to myself one day i want to try and win a mountain stage of the tour de france that well that was what i wanted to do uh I, that that was that was a dream so i mean I, I had no idea i had no idea i was going to be actually fighting it out for the the win of, of the whole thing and that i was actually going to win it four times um i think it was only only really um a little bit later on my career uh when we were working together bobby back in 2011 that I started really believing for the first time that I could ride with the GC guys. Um, I went to that one Vuelta Espana in two thousand and eleven to to help to be basically a climbing domestique for for Bradley. And um, I, I I found I was able to to pull on the climbs. I was able to be there, and there were only a few guys left. And I was like, hold on, I can, I can do this. And and I think it was that having that belief then. Gave me, gave me the drive, gave me the, the, everything I needed basically just to take that next step uh, the, the year later and really crack down to try and
2: write GC myself. So uh, looking at that back then, because I'm looking at it from more like the outside, Bobby and you, you had a pretty close relationship for many years, correct? You did work together as coach and athlete for a few years, correct? Correct. Yeah, we did.
1: Uh, when 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 did we start, Bobby? Was it 2000, 2011 or twelve? I can't remember. Yeah, two thousand
0: eleven was. Um, you were at Sky already from two thousand and ten, and I joined in two thousand and eleven. But um, okay, Yancey, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I don't know if there's that many people that that know this story, but um, I did the World Championships in Stuttgart, Germany and chris was an under 23 so when i got finished with my race which was unfortunately three laps before the end i go back up to the uh, the little pit and our um guy that was taking care of us noel dejonker was like hey do you just want to take a quick shower and i take you to the airport now and i was just like yeah that sounds great so it's kind of weird like being at the airport seeing the race on tv and there's a tall very thin (laughs) young rider that comes up to me when I'm sitting in the, uh, the lounge departure area. And he just, he just had such a a bunch of questions and we had like a great conversation. And to be honest, like I, I was so like in a weird place because of dropping out of the worlds as he walked away, I even forgot what his name was. And fast forward, to 2000, December of 2010 up in the UK, we're sitting there having all the riders meetings and uh, I was a new race coach. I think that was my term at the time. And this kid walks in, Chris Froome, and I'm assigned to, to be his race coach for that year. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, this kid looks so familiar, but I don't remember where I've met him before. <laughs> and then, Once the meeting was over, I googled him and then I remembered that conversation at that airport. So, yeah, it's crazy, you know, you never know who you're going to meet in such a random place like that. And then from that point on, you know, Chris was living in Italy at that time, I was down in Nice. Um, very funny story, which will probably take too long of, of what happened there, but next thing you know. Chris is living down in Monaco and, you know, we're working together, going to the races together. And yeah, that was, that was just good times there. Good times there. But to be honest, yeah, to be very honest, Chris had the talent and I didn't do anything special there. The one thing that I saw that Chris needed, which was what I needed when I was his age, was just to kind of get things in order a little bit because when you're young, you're just kind of going all over the place. You know, you don't know about nutrition. You don't know how to do your banking. You know, you don't know how to, you know, get a phone in your new apartment. Right. And I just think that we hit it off from like a big brother, little brother level there. And, um, it wasn't so much about getting you, you know, doing specific stuff on the bike. It was just kind of making your life a little bit more calm off the bike. And, To see you succeed in the way that you did, um, was absolutely fantastic. But you already mentioned the 2011 tour of Spain. And, um, I don't know if you remember this, but you were not, you were a reserve for that race. And then Lars Pater Nordhug got, um, got sick. And we had one of our powwows with Dave B and Caro and Rod Ellingworth. And I put my hand up in the middle of the meeting and I said, We need to take chris to the tour or to the vuelta and oh yeah you know chris is riding well but you know he's never done a three-week stage race like this before and i went there for the you know the first week or so and then that's how we did it we'd go there for a week and then go home for a week and come back for the final week and i remember after the team time trial you came down to breakfast and we were basically by ourselves and i said chris make sure you make the most of this opportunity because like, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. And you went from not being the most confident person up until that point to all of a sudden, just, I got this, I got this. And I was like, wow, you know, that's pretty impressive change. (laughs) And the rest was history. You know, you, um, you finished second and, Retrospectively, a couple years later, you wound up winning, which was the first grand tour
1: for any British rider, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty weird way to, to have won it. Um, <laughs> being being awarded the, the victory, like, what was it? I was, I was actually, I think, I was still in ICU after my big crash in 2019 um, when, when the news came out that, uh, that, that I was basically being awarded the, the victory. Um, so what was that? Like nine years later, it was crazy.
2: So now that you won all these Grand Tours, um, we just um, realized that uh, earlier, you're the only British rider to win a Grand Tour without a track cycling background. How did you? Uh, how do you feel about that? Have you actually ever <laughs> been on a track, just for the fun of it? I mean, you know, Bradley Wiggins obviously was a track rider. Garen Thomas has a yeah. huge background on a track. So, uh, 100%. Did you ever race the track or you ever tried or? so
1: yeah that, that that that's another funny story actually yes i i did go on the track once um there was a there was a track in in south africa in johannesburg i, I went for a, i think it was a normal track day on a sunday where there's a bunch of uh, bunch of events for for our club um it's uh, just doing like a scratch race and and, and uh, a few few different events but it was my first time ever on a track bike and I think we just moved my moved my pedals from my road bike uh straight onto the track bike and um going going around one of the bends trying to trying to sprint for the elimination I think in 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 the elimination race my cleat came out the pedal unclipped and I I went flying um went flying broke my collarbone nope. needless to say I haven't been back on the track since so that was my one and only time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I definitely wouldn't call myself a track rider.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, you are the greatest grand tour rider of your generation. And I'm sure our listeners already can tell that you're just so calm and quiet and unpretentious off the bike, but on the bike you're, you're, you're a stone cold killer. Like you got that dagger behind your your back, just ready to pounce. What is the what switch flips when you go from off the bike to on the bike?
1: Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, I mean, I I almost feel as if <laughs> if I could sort of uh, diagnose myself as having a split personality disorder, I'd probably be not too not too far from uh, from the truth. But I I do feel as if. Um, obviously this is who I am off the bike I, I am um, what, what people say I am I'm relatively it doesn't not much really uh, it takes quite a lot to um, to to uh, anger me or disturb me or anything I mean I'm pretty rela- I'm a pretty relaxed guy um, but on the bike yeah I mean that's that's racing and, and I feel as on the bike I'm a completely different person um so there's there's no um yeah um there's basically no stop that won't won't be pulled out um and i I apply that to my training as well i mean i feel as if that's really uh the part of the sport that i i I love and i i really it's it's the it's the 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 sacrifices i mean of course it's tough. There are, there are tough sides to being a professional cyclist. It's a lifestyle. I mean, you guys know better than me. It's, it's 24 seven. It's it's the way you live. It's not just how you train. It's, it's everything. But I, I, I do feel as if when I'm on the bike, a different side of me comes out uh, and it's a more, uh, sort of, how can I put it? Primitive side of me. It's just like, like almost like an animal instinct, I guess. Um, and it's, it's racing, it's bike racing and yeah, you can't be a gentleman on the bike. Sometimes you, you gotta, you gotta race, you gotta beat the other guys to the line or whatever it is.
2: Do you think it's a part of your African heritage in you? Is that the wild continent in you? You're bringing up in Africa, Hey, go for a kill and uh, take it. Would that have some, something to do with it or you just experience, Hey the one who takes initiative first, who really acts like he wants it, gets it in the end? Or is it just your upbringing, um, your youth in, in Africa?
1: I think, I think there's, there's been a common sort of theme throughout my career of if you want something bad, badly enough, you're going to make it happen. And that, I guess that's how I feel about racing as well. If, if you, you work hard enough and you really badly, like so badly want to succeed and win, then you're not going to let what someone thinks of you or what someone says about you on the bike, um, change that. So like you said, it's, it's basically gloves off and full, full gas for the win.
0: Man, it's, uh, it's just funny to hear you talk like that. Um, because I often wonder like what, what drives you, um, to be, who you are, like, you know, you were touted that, hey, you're kind of like, um, not the best descender. And then all of a sudden you flipped the script and became one of the best descenders and may, were attacking on downhills and doing the special pedaling super tuck. Um, so when you find a quote unquote, like weakness, how do you overcome and succeed in turning that weakness into a strength. What what is it inside of you that you focus on?
1: I think there's there's, there's part of my personality where when I when I get fixated on something, I, I really get fix, fixated on it. And I think if, uh, like you said, at some point in my career, I think it was like two thousand fifteen or something, I was I had people telling me, yeah, he's yeah, the guy's a good climber, everything else, but he can't descend. And I remember thinking, okay, well, I've got to, I've got to do something about that. I've got to, I've got to change that narrative. Um, and I can remember spending a whole winter, every time I did a descent, I'd just sit on my top tube and pedal and like practice being in that position, just being comfortable taking corners, it's finding where that limit is of which corners can you go around sitting on the top tube? Which ones do you have to get back on your saddle on? And I just, I think I just got more and more comfortable. Training, training like that. And I, I got it in my head so much that this is something I need to practice. I need to, I need to basically stamp out this, this, um, notion of this guy is a bad descender. That first mountain stage of the tour I got to, um, ended on a descent. I was like, right, give me a bigger chain ring for that day. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it. Um, like, I, th- I think we got to the top, top of the climb. There were probably about 10 of us left. And Quintana was was on my wheel. I was sitting at the front and I could see him going for a bottle. I was just like, whatever, man. It's like 10, 12 Ks to go of descending. This is my chance. He's distracted. He's going for a feed right now. I'm off. Like, um, and yeah, um, I, I think I've had similar, um, similar, 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 similar stories throughout my career. I mean, I remember the one year in 2014 when I broke my wrist, uh, the day before the cobbles and everyone was saying, oh, he can't, he can't ride cobbles. Um, <laughs> I didn't even see a cobble that year, but everyone was saying, yeah, this guy can't ride cobbles. So the next year when we went back and we had, we had cobbles, I made sure I attacked on the cobbles and actually went off the front in a small, small split. It came back together in the last 10 Ks, but I mean. It was just like this thing of, I guess that's my personality. If people sort of tell me I can't do something, I I almost want to go out of my way to show that I can't.
2: I think that's, that's what, what makes a champion. I was always too nice and friendly and too too normal, you know? I, I didn't have that, you know? So it's fantastic to hear. So, Chris, my favorite moment of you was probably that attack in a crosswinds, close to the finish in the Tour de France. You and Peter Sagan, you in yellow... Peter Zagan in a world champion jersey, two of the absolute superheroes of that time attacking, what was it, like 10K to go? It was like, I was commenting on it. And I was like, oh my God, I have such a fan moment. I was so awesome to watch you guys putting the hammer down. And the other people saw it coming, but nobody could respond. So for me, that was the best moment of your career. But uh, what do you think about it? Was that as special for you as it was for me? Or just another D in the saddle.
1: Yeah, I mean that that was a pretty special day and a day that I'll I'll definitely never forget. Um, and it, just just in how it happened as well, it was so impromptu. It it just it just happened. I mean, obviously everyone everyone thought that day was going to be a finish, uh, a sprint finish. Um, but it it had been a really nervous day all day with with crosswinds. There were sort of guys fighting for position all throughout the stage. And I think we got to those last 10 Ks and there were very few guys with fresh legs who had been protected the whole day. So I'd say a few sprinters and a few GC riders who basically hadn't touched the wind at that point. And we got to this roundabout where it was clear the wind was coming from the left, the all went around the roundabout on the right. And it was clear the bunch was basically in one line and I I was up front just trying to stay out of trouble and and be be in the right place at the right time. And all of a sudden, Peter Sagan took off up the road with, was it Bodnar, I think, his teammate? I think think it was Bodnar. And I I saw the two of them going and I was just like, whoa, yeah, it's chaos in the peloton right now. So I was like, okay, let me follow and see what happens. And I I remember I jumped across and uh, a few seconds later, Garen Thomas also I think he was with me, so it was now Peter and a teammate, and myself and, and a teammate. So it was like, hold on, there's four of us here. The peloton's splitting behind. This is it, let's go. Like, And I, 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 I can just remember being amazed at Peter Sagan that day. I remember getting, getting on the bus after the finish and saying to my teammates, man, it was like riding with a motorbike that day. Every time he came to pull, it was like the speed went up 5Ks an hour. Um, it was, it was, it was just something else. I can remember coming into the last few hundred meters thinking, yeah, of course he's going to beat me, but I was like, I'm not going to give it to him either. I'm going to try and sprint. And I think he was actually trying to give the victory to his teammate for some reason as, as a thank you for something. But, um, yeah, I started sprinting and very quickly, Peter just (laughs) flew past me. (laughs) Do you have a
0: favorite victory I mean you said earlier that when you first started you knew you were a good climber and you confirmed that time after time after time not only in the grand tours where I think you've won what seven stages in the tour five in the Vuelta at least two that I know of in the Giro do any of those stand out to you as being above the others
1: I think the one that really sticks out for me in my career is to date is the um, stage 19 of the Giro in, 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 um, 2018. I mean, the Giro for me was always going to be the grand tour that was going to be the hardest to win. It's, it was more unpredictable. It's more like a series of one day classics, more than a grand tour. In my opinion, it's, 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 it's less controlled, um, the the style of racing feels like it's more like a. A classics type um event rather than the tour de france which is it, it it's quite quite controlled volta volta is also different i mean you, you know where the racing is going to happen either you have the legs to be there or not but the giro is the one for me that was always going to be the joke it was always going to be the tough one and um it started off really badly for me in over in uh, jerusalem over in israel um, I crashed in the recon of the TT, um, and and I hurt myself. I, I wasn't feeling good. I, I really hurt my knee. It was swollen, um, and for the first two weeks of the Giro, I was just I was just hemorrhaging time. I think I was about four minutes down on GC coming to stage nineteen, and for one day of the race, to to basically won me the the Giro. Um, it, that that was stage nineteen on on the. Col de la Finestra over to, to Bardonecchia for the finish. And that was, I guess, one day on the bike that, uh, really stands out for me. I mean, attacking so far out on my own and basically just putting my head down and yeah, I guess saying, saying fuck you to the Peloton, just going for it myself. Um, but
0: we got to ask, we got. So I I have a little bit more inside information from this day that I I hope you can share with with our listeners. That wasn't just a, hey, I'm feeling good. I'm going to go now. Tell us the level of preparation that you, your team, and especially your teammates put into place for that day. Because afterwards, I remember texting with Rod Ellingworth and I was just like, that was unbelievable because I could see every... I think it was like four or five kilometers, there was a soigneur on the side of the road in a very, um, I think it was a green vest or an orange vest back then. And I said, man, you guys planned this, didn't you? This wasn't just an ad hoc sort of decision on Chris's part. And he sent me like this sheet that had where people were going to be throughout that climb so that you had the fuel that you needed to actually sustain that sort of massive effort and make that, that, dis, um, that, that gap to demolin. what, so, what can you share with us from that day, from the, from that so planning and execution perspective? It was planned.
1: Yes, but the, the, here's the thing is we would always earmark that stage to say, okay, right, we're going to go all in on this stage and, um, at least try and write ride myself up up the gc but the initial plan i don't think many people actually know this that the initial plan was to basically try and isolate the gc guys and bring it down to to a very select group coming to the the last climb where then i'd try and get some time over the gc guys but with that plan it was basically riding to the the finish climb with Dumoulin, Yates the other favorites and try and fight it out on the last climb, maybe still 30 seconds, a minute, if I got really lucky, I guess. Um, And it was only on the start, uh, on on the way to the start, I was actually messaging Michelle, my wife, and telling her about the plan. And I I can't remember how it came up, but it was, well, why, why, why am I trying to isolate them 80 k's to go? and then riding with them for the last 80 Ks. Why don't I just go solo 80 Ks to go and see what happens behind me. I mean, and that idea was just great. I loved it. I was just like, okay, this, this now makes sense. Like I could actually take considerable time if, if they mess around, if they don't chase me properly, or, uh, they look at each other to, to try and get someone else to chase or, um, that, that plan actually <clears throat> sounded a lot better to me. And I can remember sending Tim Karrison the message. Um, I, I think we were at the start of, by that point and saying to him, hey, uh, why, why don't I look to try and go solo 80Ks to go? And I can remember his reply was something along the lines of, that's uh, a bit risky, but let's do it. Something like that. And... Um, I, I just remember thinking, okay, this is it. This, this is it now. Um, I've, I've got to go all in, 80Ks to go. We're, we're not just going to make it hard on Finestra. I'm actually just going to have to go solo on Finestra because making it hard would would isolate the leaders, but then there'd be a select group of us. But I I, I basically figured out I need to go alone. That That's the only way I, I'm going to be able to actually get some real time back on these guys. So the planning then, I mean, we'd already planned that the feeding was going to be insane. I mean, I was going to try and feed more than I'd ever fed before in terms of I, I something over, like over a hundred, hundred grams an hour, um, of, of carbs. And I, I, I can actually remember almost feeling sick going to the start. I'd eaten. I can't remember what it was. It was over, over 500 grams of rice, which is just a mountain of rice, um, for, for breakfast. And I, I just felt I felt bloated. I felt almost sick going to sign on. But I was, I was so glad obviously by the finish of that day that I had fueled that way because I was completely empty at the finish. And had I not fueled the way we would planned, I, I don't think I would have made it without without basically just blowing up.
2: Um, before I come to my next question, a quick add on to this. You sure had to say thank you to your team that day as well, right? Because they rode a killer tempo all the way, already making the peloton stretch out smaller and smaller and smaller. Prepare your attack, right? The entire team was involved in it, right?
1: Hundred percent, hundred percent. So basically, as soon as we started on the the Col de la Finestra, which is which is a long climb. I mean, it's uh, you, you've got a good, I don't know, ten k's on the on the on the on the normal roads, and then you actually hit the gravel. And it carries on for like another 10 k's or something so it's, it's a long climb and we hit the bottom of the finestra and it was like okay now the plan's going into action and one by one each of my teammates emptied themselves they absolutely emptied themselves almost as if it was a a lead out to the final kilometer um and it was still 80 k's to go so i mean the peloton was just i think guys were just like what are these guys doing it's it's way too far from the finish and it, the the peloton just exploded it was in like ones and twos going up there and it's been quite funny um now years later getting to speak to some of my my teammates who were Israel Israel Premier Tech on that day who were basically just trying to make time cut for that stage and hearing some of the war stories from further back in the race it I mean it just sounded like it was carnage everywhere on on that stage because of the way uh, my teammates basically went into that climb and just destroyed the peloton and and then uh, I can remember getting onto the gravel and just saying to Kenny, Kenny Alison, who was my last guy. Okay. Everything now, Kenny, like one, one K as hard as you can. And then I'm attacking. And uh, I don't think I even had to attack. I just had to carry on riding at, at the pace that he left me. And I think that, that was it. I was alone.
2: We'll be back after this short break. So now actually, my actual question is the complete opposite side of that. That day went perfectly according to the plan. How about that day on Mont Ventoux? That didn't really went like it was planned, right? That famous <laughs> story. Of, of course, we had to oh, talk man. about it. I know you talked about it a million times, but we just had yeah. to ask at least one question about that. So fill us in a little bit. What happened and how did it happen on that day?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was chaos. That was chaos. I mean, already from the morning, they had to change the finish to move the finish to uh, Chalet Renard, which is sort of like the what is it, two-thirds of the way up two or something, uh, or just just over the halfway mark of Vontu because it was it was too windy that day. I think there were winds over like 100 kilometers an hour or something that day up at the top. So um, all, everything had to be moved down the mountain um, in just a few hours. And the basically it condensed all the fans into a much smaller area. And I don't think there were barriers where there were meant to be barriers coming into the last couple of Ks. And anyway, I, I think I, I was feeling good on that day. Um, I, I wanted to go for it. It was one, <clears> two, <throat> it was one, two. I'd won there before. And, um, I think I attacked, uh, a few Ks from the finish, uh, Ritchie Port and Balcom Mollema had, had come with me. Um, and the three of us were just riding. I think it was just over a kilometer to go. And I think the crowds were just too thick for, for the motorbikes to, to get through. And so, um, riding obviously at, 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 race pace, the motorbikes just suddenly slammed on brakes in front of us. And I think Richie was the first to, hmm. he was, uh, first just to pile into the motorbike, I piled into Richie, uh, Molema went into the back of me and then even the motorbike that was filming us behind us, drove over the back of my bike and, and broke my, broke my rear stays. Um, so. Got, got up to try and get going again i i saw straight away my frame was broken i was like uh oh, damn and i know the the support cars were nowhere close by because we would just attacked so there was still a, like a, a peloton of the gc favorites like i don't know 30 seconds behind us and i knew the cars would probably only be behind that pellet behind that group and i knew there was just over a k to the finish and it's like this was chaos where we were standing. It was just there were, there were so many people spectators in the road with us. I was like, man, there's there's no way I'm gonna get a bike here. So, natural instinct, I was just like, okay, I've got a kilometer to go. If I can even just do two three hundred meters of that by foot, I'm gonna be closer to the finish by the time the car comes. So, I'm just gonna keep going forward. Uh, just picked up my bike, carried on going, and then I figured, why am I carrying a bike? It's it's is useless to me. It's, it's broken. The frame is snapped. So I just ditched the bike. And uh, yeah, I just felt as if I had to, I had to keep moving forward. I, I didn't want to just stand there and, and, and <laughs> uh, have nothing to do. So it, I, I guess, yeah, naturally, I just wanted to keep moving.
0: Somebody told me that, you know, obviously instinct takes over in a situation like that. But somebody told me or I read it somewhere where it was more of like a survival thing? Because like you said, you where you stopped, there was a bunch of people. And, you know, was was that part of your plan was just to get out of the fray of of people? Because let's face it, uh, back then, you know, the French public were a little, I think, jealous of not only you, but the entire Team Sky back then. And there was documented things that wasn't the best for, for fans to say, do... Throw on you that sort of thing, was was that part of it? Because let's face it, I don't think any cyclist likes to really run, especially uphill in cleats. Was was that at all like a instinct of survival for you?
1: So I mean, you're completely right. There were some extremely nasty things happening on the roadside that I mean, we we didn't even go into at the time uh, publicly because uh, we didn't want to draw attention to it. I mean. Guys, my, me, my teammates, uh, we're, we're being punched basically on a daily basis going through the crowds. But at that point, it, it wasn't, that wasn't really a consideration for me. It wasn't really, I, I need to get away from these people because they're bothering me or harassing me. It was more, I need to get away from these people so I can get a bike because while all these people are standing in the road here, my car is not going to get through. So better I run a little bit further. Maybe there's going to be barriers. I'll have more space. Um, whatever it was, I I wanted to keep going towards the finish, uh, to basically save time. And I wanted to get away from the people so that I could get, basically get a bike safely where, where I was, I I didn't think I'd be able to get a bike because the car wouldn't be able to get through with all those people.
2: So um, running is not exactly our second nature as a cyclist, right? I mean, like the old cyclists used to say, a cyclist is on the bike. If he cannot ride, he's laying down. If he cannot lay down, he's sitting. If he cannot sit, at least he's standing still. Walking and running is the last. Did you have any sore muscles or any aches in your legs running and running shoes in cleats, uphill? Probably haven't been running for the six months before that. Day. So, did you had any any muscle muscle issues uh, the next day after that, or or swept I mean, away by the I, adrenaline? I, I,
1: I probably was a bit stiff the next day, but it was probably more from crashing into the back of Richie in the motorbike than uh, I, I. I probably didn't put it down to the running, um, but I mean, I think I was only running for about two minutes or so, and then and then uh, the neutral car came and, and gave me a, a BMX that didn't fit, and then. Um, then, uh, then eventually the team car um, caught up and, and got got my spare bike to me. But um, yeah, I, I don't think the legs were, were sore from running necessarily. I actually did quite a bit of running uh, uh, previously in my career. And even now um, in off season, I do a lot of running. And even during the season, sometimes it's, it's like a, a warm up in the mornings. I, I go out for a little like 20, 30 minute run as well. So I, I enjoy running.
0: Well, his name has come up a couple times and I'm glad it did because, um, <clears throat> you know, Richie Port also lived with you in Monaco back in the, uh, in 2011, um, 12, I mean, you guys lived there basically your whole careers, but you guys had a unique relationship. And when I was working with both of you, um, I referred to you guys quite often as the twins. And um, you guys are not at all similar, but at the same time, you guys were very driven, young, living in Monaco. So you spent most of your career with Richie, and Richie, we had him on our podcast recently, and you know he's happily retired now, on his way down to Tasmania to to kind of hang out. But so he was. You guys worked very well together. And then he switched teams to kind of try to take that leadership role. And for the first couple of years, it just crashes got in his way. Um, Sickness, you know, bad, bad stuff happened in the Tour de France. But then in 2020, he finally got on the podium. How do you how did you feel that day when when you saw Richie getting on the podium after all Uh, the times that you guys have spent together?
1: That was amazing. That was absolutely amazing. Um, I was. Um, I I wasn't at the tour that year, two thousand twenty. Uh, that was that was year after after the big crash, um, but just amazing to see. I mean, for some, not only because he's he's a good mate of mine, but I mean, the number of times he came to the Tour de France with me, and basically did that that last role in the mountains for me. I mean, he was there when there were probably only three, four guys left in the race at at a lot of occasions. And I always knew he had the ability to put three weeks back to back and actually ride the GC himself. I mean, he was part of that very, very elite climbing group with, when there's only a few guys left in the race. But I think for him, his, his biggest challenge was always putting three weeks in back to back and not having a one terrible day where he'd lose everything with a big crash or something going wrong. And so to see everything come together for him in 2020, as you said, after a few years of, of trying it out on his, on, on, as, on his own as, as a leader and not really having things go his way, it was... It was awesome i mean i wasn't a teammate of his at at the time when when he did that but i was i was so happy for him so happy to see um see him get what he deserved that he can basically say he stood on that podium in paris um something that he'll treasure for, for the rest of his life
2: so now we talked so much about racing and exciting moments On the other side, what makes you relax? What do you do after racing, after training? You read read books, you do Netflix, you go fishing. Or what makes you relax? What makes you happy in your downtime? (laughs)
1: Um, I enjoy enjoy the outdoors. And I especially enjoy um, water, like being close to the sea. Um, Anything to do with uh, being in or on the water um i i enjoy surfing i enjoy um spearfishing um snorkeling um kayaking anything anything in the water um i i I just find it's
2: it's calming for me to be on the water Uh, so how long can you hold your breath then when you go spearfishing i think if it's about saving my life, I can maybe reach just a minute, maybe. But how long can you hold your breath down there? <laughs> so I've,
1: I've never actually timed it, but I mean it's definitely trainable. I can see when I haven't done it for a while, uh, I can't go down and stay down very long at all. But I can see after going two, three times a week, maybe um, in uh, when I've got some some downtime, after after a good good few sessions, it. it I find I can I feel like I'm a lot calmer when I'm underwater. Uh the heart rate goes goes down a bit more, I think, and, and I can stay down longer. So um it's definitely something you can train.
0: And to stay on this theme of of Jens's previous questions, I, I really do want people, our listeners, to kind of get to, to know you as a person uh a little bit more because I think everyone knows your Palmares as a as a cyclist. But if you weren't a cyclist. What profession do you think you'd be doing
1: right now? So it's 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 funny because I mean I, when I went to university, I studied a a BCom economics, so basically a, an economics degree. Um, I I don't think I'd be in an office doing economics. Um, I think I always had a huge passion for the outdoors, uh, for for wildlife, and especially. I guess, having grown up in Africa, conservation is a, is a really big issue uh, out there. And especially um, looking after rhinos, for example, um, trying to make sure they, they, they don't become extinct with, with all the poaching and everything. Um, I, I think that my passion for, for wildlife would have taken me in a completely different direction and I would have probably had something to do with uh, conservation
2: um in in africa somewhere see my answer to this question obviously, is i would love to be the assistant of sir richard attenborough making you know animal <laughs> documentations i would love to be working with him the man is a legend that, so that goes that, that somewhere guy, in the that same direction like you yeah
1: yeah that guy's my hero so uh, yeah uh, that would have been my dream job 100 percent yancy mm-hmm.
0: well what's your favorite sport to watch as a spectator then I mean, everybody watches you all the time. What What's the one that you really like to watch yourself?
1: So I'm, I'm not not big into to football uh, or soccer, um, as you call it over in the U.S. Um, I, I do, however, enjoy watching rugby. Uh, rug, rugby is the one, one sport I, I, I do. I, I could sit down and happily watch a, um, a, a good game, um, especially sevens. I find sevens rugby is a, is a very, it's almost a very niche. You've, it relies a lot more on fitness, um, tactics, technique as well. Um, I, I enjoy watching watching rugby. I guess that, that was the sport I, I played at school growing up. And uh, I've, I've always, I guess, enjoyed watching a good game of rugby.
2: I must say every now and then I do watch highlights, highlights of Iona Lomu. That guy just <laughs> was a legend in the sport, right? He was probably one of it the, was. call him the goat, the greys of all times in the sport. Unfortunately, he passed away too early, but he was a hero for me, I have to say. Oh, that guy was an absolute monster, mm-hmm. 100%. So, Chris, how and when did you meet your wife?
1: So, we we met, uh, met back in... I think we were actually introduced by Daryl Impey, um, way back in, in South Africa while I was, uh, while I was still studying in South Africa. Um, but we, I guess we only became an item, um, in about 2010, I think when, when I joined Team Sky, um, and, and moved, uh, moved from Italy over to Monaco, um, she was, she was in IT, um, doing basically programming, uh, IT stuff. And what I loved about her when I first met her was just how independent she was. Um, I always knew that being a, or having the dream of being a professional cyclist, I, I, I would need to be with someone who was extremely independent, able to stand on their own two feet, and basically. Be able to sort themselves out, uh, two thirds of the time while, while we we're away racing, training, everything else. And, um, I loved how independent she was and, um, how basically, yeah, capable she was on, on her own. She didn't need, uh, she wasn't reliant on her parents or anyone to, to prop her up. She, she was very driven. She knew what she wanted to do. And, um, yeah, I guess, um. We stayed in touch over the years, and uh, she moved over over to join me in two thousand. I think it was two thousand and ten, if I'm not mistaken.
0: I think it was two thousand and eleven because I have a little input into the story as well. Oh, okay. so, so we were at one of the last races to prepare the Tour of Spain in two thousand and eleven, and after the race, you know, I get all the SRM boxes and I go to the back of the bus and upload them and everything like that. And I come out like 45 minutes later and you are still sitting in the bus, like no shower, you know, well, you you probably had a shower, but like the the massage was probably going on. And I'm like, Chris, you know, you you gotta get back in the hotel to recover. And you're like, I'm just texting this girl right now. And I was just like, wait, that was the first time you ever mentioned a girl to me. And we had been working together for that whole year. And you showed me a picture of her. And I said, well, Chris, after the season, you definitely, when you go back to South Africa, you definitely have to meet, you know, this, this woman and yeah, the rest was history. I remember she came up and, um, you guys have been together ever since, but now you have two kids. Tell us a little bit about your kids.
1: Yeah, they're great. Um, so we've got a seven or 7 seven-year-old Kellen and, um, and a four-year-old Katie, um, they're <laughs> they're amazing i mean there's nothing um there's nothing that what i love most about my kids is just they just don't get cycling uh, there's there's nothing that they're not they don't really follow the racing or that they're not asking me about cycling stuff i get in the door and it's basically just pulling them apart from, from ripping each other apart most of the time. But, um, it's brilliant. It's, it's, it's a great way for me to, when I get back from training, just completely almost forget about cycling for, for a little while. Um, when I walk in that front door, life at home is no longer about, uh, my cycling or what I need to, to be thinking of next. It's, it's, it's hundred percent on, on, on them, which, uh, which, which is refreshing and um kellen's uh kellen's probably a little bit more like me a little bit sort of quiet off the bike uh i mean when when i'm off the bike um a little bit more reserved uh keeps to himself a little bit more uh but my my daughter's just the polar opposite she's miss sociable and um straight straight up to the first boy she can find in the park, introduces herself and um they ask her straight away, oh, vous parlez français uh, she looks at them confidently, it's like we oui. <laughs> that's probably the only word she can say, but like <laughs> yeah she's she's definitely the, the confident confident one of of the two of them
2: looking a few years into the future where do you see yourself living with your kids after your career might come to an end, hopefully in the far future, but you want to live somewhere in Africa, or you say, you know what, Monaco seems to be nice, Great Britain, or you haven't thought about that yet because you're just about to start another season, but do you have a long-term yeah. plan, and would I you mean, like to no, share?
1: No commitments, no commitments yet. Um I mean, we're, we're pretty well settled down here uh, in the south of France between... Um, between Monaco and uh, and I guess our our um, home that we have in France as well. Um, I mean, primarily, um, Monaco is all I've really known for the for the last uh, twelve years. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's a place I'll I'll stay beyond my career um, and. Where, where are the other options? I mean, um, UK could be an option for me, but uh, to be honest, I don't think I'd survive in the weather there. <laughs> it's uh, I think they only get about 10, 15 days of sunshine a year. Um, but uh, yeah, good question. I, I, I don't know where I'll end up uh, when I'm done. You just got to play it by ear.
0: Uh, the, the women, the strong women in our lives normally have the decision on... On that. I think you're 100%
1: right there, Bobby.
2: I think you're 100% right there. Yep. Just to add to this, my wife and me, we made a plan when we get married. She, uh, uh, listen to the end, please, before you start laughing. She is in charge of the small decisions. I'm in charge of the big decisions. Since we are married, we haven't taken yet a big decision. <laughs> you know,
1: so it makes so, me feel yeah, good. Like but that.
2: actually, so, she's in charge. Yeah. but at least she's I in good. charge
1: of every every decision that you make. Yeah, yep. brilliant. So true. <laughs> so true. Um,
0: well, Chris, I tell you one thing. Um, it's been so great having you on this special 100th edition of of Bobby and Yen's. Happy New Year! All the best in 2023 and beyond. And hopefully, this year be able to go over and uh, see you guys on the, on the South of France, like the old days.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much guys. Thanks. Thanks for the, thanks for the chat.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this week, folks. Thank you very much to Chris Froome for being our guest.
2: Thanks a million for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show is a Bello News production in association with Shock
0: Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne. And this episode was edited by Tim Mosa.
2: Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.